0: Welcome to the Aristocrats Soccer Podcast, the elite soccer podcast in all of soccer podcasting. With uh, this is David Harris here with my co-host Jake Keegan. Jake, how are you today?
1: Good, Dave. Can't wait to get this episode in. Are you are you a little tired, Jake? (laughs) It's a little. It's it's a midday nap kind of time for me. But uh, oh, we we didn't
0: get the nap in. I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) <laughs> we uh, we have a really, really special guest, an elite guest today. Uh, our special guest is Perry Vanderbeck, uh very accomplished uh, former player, executive in U.S. Uh, primarily in Tampa Bay. Perry, how are you today? Good, David. How are you? Doing great. Doing great. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're
2: welcome. And, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you and Jake.
0: Great. Thank you. Um, so, Jake, uh, would would you like to get started? Do you have any questions for Perry? Anything you you'd like to ask him? We, we went through quite a bit of your career and came up with a lot of things that we thought might be uh, interesting to get your take on. So, yeah, a- so,
1: so yeah I'll, I'll start us off. Um, I'm very curious to hear about both the NASL era and um, uh, the qual- World Cup qualifiers, but we'll start with the national team. Um, you were heavily involved in both the 82 for our listeners who may not, you, being that you're a little bit of an older name, they might not know. You're very heavily involved in both the 82 World Cup qualifying and the 86 World Cup qualifying for the United States. And that was a period where we were, as a nation, we were pushing to kind of make that World Cup for the first time since 1950. And even though you fell a little short, um, I think your generation was hugely important for the '99, or sorry, the 1990 World Cup when they eventually qualified, and then every World Cup since, uh, besides the last one. Uh, so, can you just tell me a little bit about that experience with the national team? Um, yeah,
2: yeah, sure. So, so again, just uh, obviously, you look at the the evolution of the national team. You know, going back to the late '70s, early '80s, you know, it was a lot different, obviously, than what is now. Um, uh, the preparation was different. You know, the the, the player pool was, obviously it's a lot deeper now than what it used to be. So um again, and in, in the growth of the North American Soccer League with the American players, when I joined the league in 1978, the, the league rule was that you had to have two North Americans on the field at all times. And the reason was North Americans because we had teams in Canada. So, you know, just having come out of high school and and, and getting an opportunity to play with the rowdies. That's you know really where you know the development stage in my career was, so you know getting involved with that with the Olympic team, playing in the Pan Am Games in '79. So now you start getting to be recognized and get the experience. So you know going into playing those qualifiers in the early '80s, um, you know obviously you know back then obviously Mexico was was the power, but again some of the Caribbean islands like the Trinidad and Jamaica. Uh, And again, in Central America, you had Honduras, El Salvador, uh, Costa Rica, you know, they were all uh, very strong countries, obviously, you know, at that level, but, uh, and even Canada, Um, you know, when, when I first started playing professional soccer, there was a lot of international players that were playing for Canada and uh, obviously they were, they were successful since then, obviously, you know, things have changed, but um, so going into the, the 82 world cup qualifiers, um, yeah, it was a little bit difficult. Um, again, when I mentioned the player pool, most of the players were coming from the professional leagues, A couple of guys out of college, but more guys that were playing their, you know, first two, three, four years of professional soccer. And again, when I mentioned the, the preparation, you know, the Federation back in the day, the, the budget wasn't there. So, you know, sometimes we didn't get together until some of the NASL teams were either out of the playoffs, all right? And, uh, and when we did, you know, it wasn't for a long period of time, unfortunately. You know you're there for gosh at the most three or four days and now you're playing a, a qualifier not a friendly to get started we really haven't played with each other but now you're involved in a qualifier but it's just the way it was you know we had to accept it and you know all the players we give it our all i do remember uh historically that the united states did beat mexico in fort lauderdale and um we actually beat him it was a 2-1 and stevie moyers obviously another player that i grew up with in st louis scored both goals for some reason, Jake and David, nobody can find that tape. They have highlights, but just the game tape, it, it just disappeared because Mexico, I think they're so uh, embarrassed by that result that, uh, you know, that's uh, so that was one of the highlights of, uh, of that uh, competition there. Um, going into the, you know, the 86 qualifiers, obviously the NASL took it upon themselves because at the beginning, the United States was petitioning to host the World Cup and uh, they thought that they put a team together inside the North American Soccer League of all American players, they could convince FIFA that if the United States gave them the World Cup, awarded to them, that we would have a team that's training, that's already in preparation. So in 1983, they formed Team America. Uh, Probably, gosh, five months into the season, Mexico was awarded the World Cup. So after this season, all the players disbanded, because we're on loan from our original NESL teams, back to our original clubs, and um, unfortunately, you know, that, uh, we, didn't, we didn't qualify there. And it, 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 and it was important for us, I think, but you know, we, uh, we got some good results and uh, it was actually in our hands. All we needed was a tie in, uh, uh, against Costa Rica. The game was at El Camino College out in, uh, in, in California and we ended up losing the game 1-0. So with that result, that knocked us out. Um, obviously Canada, I think went into the next round and they ended up qualifying out of our region. Uh, so those were the two uh, qualifiers that I was involved in. Obviously, there's a lot more to the story, but, you know, I'm sure you guys got many other questions to ask me. So just kind of let you know, that's, uh, you know, it's kind of an overall view of, of, of where we're at at that time.
0: One of the things I was curious about you know, just hearing you talk about um, the funding from the Federation, um, you know, looking back at several of the games that you played for the national team at that time, uh, you know, they seem like there are a lot of high profile friendlies against teams like Italy, England, France, um, you know, and I mean, you're getting competing against some of the top teams, top players in the world. The scores would be a little bit lopsided, and, and you guys not have the ability to train regularly as a team and, and build up that team chemistry. Um, was the goal with those friendlies to, just to showcase the team and, and try to raise some money to, you know, increase the budget for, for the U.S. soccer team? Well, I'm not so sure it was
2: all about, you know, obviously raising the money for the budget because, I mean, that was a very important, but I think it was gaining the international experience for us as players, you know, um, you know, as it is in any, you know, international team. You know, you're not together all the time. So when you do to get together, you know, you train. And by the way, let's just, you know, try to play as many friendly as we can. Uh, I will give the Federation credit. Um, you know, obviously playing against France, playing against Italy, uh, those were games in, in, in other, you know, countries that were obviously, uh, you know, at, at the higher level, um, you know, those were games that, you know, we were taken serious. Um, I remember, you know, we played France and Italy and New York. Um, obviously, we've traveled abroad, we played in Switzerland, we played in Hungary, we played in Spain. So uh, the Federation was very good at trying to get us, you know, some some competition, um, but obviously would, you know, would help our development and in, in, in preparation for the qualifiers. Um, but again, you know, you go back to the budget and, and again I mentioned the player pool. Uh, the budget itself, I do remember we played in a World Cup qualifier in the Netherlands and Tilly's. And we all got together because the New York Cosmos, who had seven national team players at the time, they had lost in the playoffs to Vancouver. So that freed those players up. So this is okay, let's get together in New York. We got those seven players and we can pull in, you know, another, you know, 17, 18 players. So now we got a squad that we can train for. Four or five days, fly to Netherlands and Tilly's and uh, you know, and playing the qualifier. So, it uh, you know, it, it wasn't planned out like it is now, but uh, you know, it's an honor to play for your country. And I don't want people to think that you know, it was anything less, you know, because again, we were just you know, doing the best we could with 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 what we had. And um, you know, I give credit to the head coaches, Walt Chiswitz and Bobby Gansler back in the time, and Nick Slothar and those guys, I mean, you know, they, they were just a step ahead. And again, just, uh, you know, through my development, just having that opportunity when I was 18, 19 years old, just, uh, it, it was amazing. You know, just, you just, you don't forget those opportunities. So, but yeah, we played at the Parte Prince in France. And then we played them again in New Jersey. And then we obviously played against Italy. So all those games were very important, very important for, for us to, you know, get, get used to the qualifiers. Although, you know, you're playing against, you know, some European teams. But again, we didn't want, to obviously, go and play in Central or Central America or in the Caribbean and just, obviously, you know, show the teams what we had. So that's why we had to, you know, play other people outside Concacaf.
1: During that period that you are with the national team, you scored a You scored twice, I believe, two goals. Yes. Yeah, twice. But one of them was at the Azteca in Mexico, and I, as a fan of the game, that is one of the cathedrals of of sport. just just, just in terms of Mexican fans how hostile it is I've heard uh, stories from John about when he was playing down the Azteca in terms of like the fire alarm going off at 3 a.m. in the hotel um, just weird things happening and just th- how rowdy and, and into the game uh, the Mexican fans are uh, do you have any stories for that from that kind of time period and what was it like to score in the Azteca
2: why well, do Jake and the thing is it's just you know anytime we played in the CONCACAF whether it be in Central America in the Caribbean and it, it's just you know it, it's an all-out War. Okay. And again, it's just, uh, it's about preparation. So physically and mentally, obviously playing in a high altitude, in Mexico, there's two options. You either fly in and play and get out, or you spend seven to 10 days there and get acclimated. Again, I bring up the budget that wasn't in it. So, you know, we, uh, we probably flew in uh, maybe a day before. Okay. It was never the day of, but uh, again, you can just tell—you know—you're in the plane, and next thing you know, you're over the mountains, and you're taking a dip into the airport. You once you get into the uh, into the city, obviously, there's a lot of traffic, there's uh, a lot of pollution, and you just know that hey, look, you're here for a reason. You know, we're just going to focus on the game. But their fans know why you're here, and their fans are playing part of it too. So I'm sure everything that you heard from from Johnny Harks and all those national team players—it's—it's it's that plus some. Um, you know, you take the bus, and it, and it goes down under the ground. I remember in the locker room, you know, you're in there and uh, obviously you'd be in focus. They actually have, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm sure it's still there. They have an actually um, kind of like a, a small church down there because the players, you know, see, you know, very religious, and so you know, there's the statues and things like that. So it's kind of like a shrine, and uh, that was very impressive to me. And then the next thing you know, you know, you're in the locker room, and you know, you come out from underground and onto the field, and there's a hundred thousand fans whistling you know, and, and you're trying to talk to your teammates, you know what, you know, you just, <laughs> you can't hear each other. So, um, and again, you know, that, that gets not only yourself going, but you know, the Mexican players are just, you know, they're, they're just, I mean, it, it, it's, it's their home field. It's, it's their home country and, and they just, you know, kind of put on display. So we haven't had, you know, the best results there. So, but again, myself and just like any other player that's played there, it's, uh, it's quite the experience like you've never experienced before, but, um, you know, and rightly so. I mean, they're, they're, they're passionate about their, their game. And, you know, hopefully one day in our country we're getting there and, uh, you know, it would be that difficult for them to play us. I know that, you know, when MLS came along and we had, you know, playing against Mexico in Columbus, uh, obviously in the wintertime. So those are the kind of, um, what do we say, uh, opportunities that, that we take advantage of. So just to gain, whether it be, you know, a a mental advantage, a a physical advantage, you know, a a, um, anything to 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 throw them off. All right. And and so like that. But of course, you know, you have to do your other qualifiers in Costa Rica and and Honduras and and El Salvador. And I've got many stories where, you know, you get there, you, you leave the bus and as you're going in and, you know, they tell you that, hey, look, you know what, you're late. Well, the bus took us another direction. All right. So then you get on the field and you come back and now all your stuff's missing. Oh, no, we moved it. We put it somewhere else. It's OK. So anything they can do to throw you off. And again, as John says, you know, fire alarms in the hotel, people going to go around hawking the horns. It's just uh, and it's interesting. But again, you know, over the years, I just know that the United States has progressed in a lot of ways. And, and for one is preparation. And I know that even when they had the young teams down at IMG, they were preparing for things like that. You know they took players aside and they did certain things with them and and just to say, look, you know what? This is the atmosphere that you're going to be experiencing. Okay, you need to focus on the game. You need to, you know, because again, you know, th- th- this is it. Okay, you don't get a second chance. And you know, when you're in the qualifiers, you just going to make them count. And because it's all about that. It's you know, it's 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 that or it's you know, you wait another four years. So um, yeah, that some good experience. A Couple of players I just don't want to mention their names. Obviously, you know, there's there's been some fights to where. Uh, you know, we had one of the bigger players on our team. And I forget him. I just seen it at the St. Louis Hall of Fame banquet last year and we reminisced. And I asked him, I says, you know, was that in Mexico? But it was actually in Guatemala when um, he actually, you know, got into it with one of the players. He kept kicking him. Well, next thing you know, like I said, he's a big guy. He started chasing the player. And the player was running for his life. And the rest of the team was chasing our player, right? Next thing you know, he turns around and the team just dispersed, okay, because he was just massive. But, you know, here you are trying to play a soccer game and, you know, next thing you know, you know, players are running for their lives. Um, and again, I just seen Dr. Joe Matchnick up in uh, at the Walt Chiswitz found, uh, Foundation in, uh, in Baltimore last year. And we were reminiscing. We were playing a friendly what we thought was a friendly in Puerto Rico. Well, next thing you know, we're on the bus trying to get out of the parking lot. And we're just, you know, we're just all on the floor. It's just, you know, we didn't think we we're going to make it out. So, you know, those are things that you, you look back and it's like, you know, what an experience. But, you know, when people talk about the hostility, it's there, so.
0: Can you talk a little bit, one of the things I've found uh, pretty interesting about your, your career with, or, or one game in particular with the national team, was in 85, uh, you know, the two goals you scored, the, the goal in 85 in Tampa, where you had been playing, you know, been such a big player for the Rowdies and the score against Switzerland. Uh, Just what kind of memory does that bring back to you? It must be a really fond one.
2: Uh, Yeah, they are. In fact, both goals I scored with my head.
0: (laughs) But uh, again,
2: you know, one of the players that uh, I had a lot of respect for over the years and we're still very good friends was Angelo DiBernardo. And, you know, Angelo actually had the assist on the goal. So, um, you know, you're right. You know, I I came here in 78 to play for the Rowdies. And, you know, what an honor it was to play an international. uh, And actually the game was played at the University of Tampa and uh but the place was full uh we had a lot of fans there obviously they're all pro u.s fans and you know switzerland i would say this i mean they're not you know they weren't you know at at the top in the competition but again these were the games that we're playing the friendlies that uh, you know to gain some experience so um yeah it was um i am trying to think was you know obviously it was inside the 18 but uh you know obviously the ball coming across and you know angelo just you know knocking it back out of the air with his foot and he's obviously coming in the ball and um you know, just obviously headed as hard as I could into the corner and, you know, next thing you know, we're tying the game, which gave us some momentum, but at the end of the day, we just, you know, ended up with a tie. So, but again, like you said, David, it's, uh, you know, it's always an honor to play when, well, you know, for your country, but, you know, to play in Tampa or for me where I'm from, I played, you know, several uh, qualifiers and friendlies in St. Louis. Um, and that's obviously where I grew up. So, um, you know, when you get to play in front of your, your, your home crowd, it's, 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 it's fun.
1: What is it about that Tampa air? Do you love the humidity? You've been there basically your, your entire life after, after your childhood. You just love yeah. Tampa. Can't get enough of it, huh?
2: Well, you know what, Jake? It, it is hard to leave because, again, when people uh, that, you know, you talk about the North American Soccer League, you know, the, the Rowdies were, they were, you know, it's, it was an iconic, and I think it is today, franchise. I mean, don't get me wrong. The Cosmos, you know, Warner Brothers was their investor. They had, you know, some of the best players in the world. You know, after the season, they, they, they made a world tour. But playing in Tampa in front of our crowds, you know, here I am coming out of high school and we're averaging 30,000. You know, there were sometimes on July 4th, we had 50,000. When the Cosmos came, we had 50, you had 50,000. You know, when Johan Cruyff showed up. And interesting enough, I came out of St. Louis out of high school in 78. High school soccer did not start in Tampa until 1980. But the fans, you know, it was a successful team. Um, and again, it's just the, the the marketing of the team and the songs that they sang and, so the players were called the Rowdies. They had a band called the Loudies. They had cheerleaders called the Wowdies. and the fans were called the Fannies. And it just uh, you know, if you ever look at back at the history, it's just uh, you know how it was. And it's not just myself, Jake. It's just you know what? There's probably 20 former NASL players that still live in this area. You know, Rodney Marsh and Mike Connell, Wes McLeod, Winston Debose, Peter Anderson, you know, Mark Lindsay, just to name a few. These guys have not left, and you know. The ironic thing about it is all these players, you know, at one time have put back into the game. So I just think that, um, you know, a lot of success with some of the players that come out of this area has to do with having a professional team here. Um, You know, growing up in St. Louis, we had a team called the St. Louis Stars and the club that I was involved with, which is now Scott Gallagher, back then it was called Collins of Volkswagen. But um, our coaches were Rick Benben, uh, Dan Gaffney, Bobby O'Leary, Tommy Howe. Uh, John Schaefering, you know, these guys all play professionally at a high level. So that was an advantage that, you know, we had, I don't think that, you know, a lot of these other cities did not. So, you know, in you soccer going to play, you know, like in Louisville or in Omaha, I mean, we're killing these teams, seven, eight, one, even in Kansas city, you know, back in the day, you know, we just, we just used to dominate. When I played for the national team, there was, you know, seven, nine of us at one time. In fact, I just look at a picture that they put up for the 1980 Olympic team. And it actually was a national team playing at Azteca. There's, six of us from St. Louis that we're starting, five or six of us. So, you know, I, I kind of got off the subject there, but just, um, you know, coming down here to Tampa, it's a great area to live. And, um, you know, but just, you know, being part of the club, you know, and, 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 and you know, the people, they just, um, they always supported the team and, and to this day they do, but um, you know, you got the Cosmos, you had the Rowdies, you had Chicago sting, obviously, you know, those were those uh, Seattle Sounders. All those teams were very well followed you know, if you look at the history.
1: How were you scouted out of high school from St. Louis, Missouri to the Tampa Bay Rowdies? How did that even work back then? Did, I mean, they didn't have Instat, that's for sure. So uh, <laughs> how, how exactly did that come about? Because you were were you the first high schooler uh, drafted yeah. straight to the yes, how did yes. That
2: come Yes. So how that came about was um, obviously, you know, I, I grew up playing club soccer and I um, so you know we're, we're playing you know in, in other states and again you know you obviously got you know the federation had their coaching staff but it wasn't until my junior year that there was the u17 national team and we actually took a trip so there, there was trial tip in princeton new jersey and the head coach at the time was a gentleman by the name of bill muse and the assistant coach was angus mcalpine so if you look at you know the the history of the coaches in the Federation, those two gentlemen's names will come up. So we, as U17s, we headed over to Europe and probably played about four or five games. Uh, And that was, I think, what, in 77. And obviously when we came back, I had started my high school uh, season. Uh, We actually you know, uh, played in the fall. And myself and another player named Johnny Hayes, we got the invite to now compete in a tournament in Monaco, France. And it was very interesting because at the time, you know, under the Missouri high school association laws, I couldn't play for two teams. So I had to choose, do I play for my country or do I play for my high school? So obviously I, you know, I think I made the right choice. And I told them, you know, before the state uh, final started that myself and Johnny Hayes, you know, we're going to go play for the national team. So we headed over to Monaco and the reason I bring this tournament up, this is back in 1977. And I remember the president of FIFA was in the stands and, uh, and Franz Beckenbauer was in the stands and we're playing at the, you know, right there in Monaco. There was three rule, uh, experimental rules that were in this international tournament. So there was eight countries. And the three rules were if the ball went out of bounds instead of throwing it, in, you kicked it in. If the ball went out between the goalpost and the 18 it was a short corner kick. And then if you got a yellow card you set off for 10 minutes. And this is back in 1977 that FIFA was trying to you know, experiment with these rules. But having said that, at that tournament, you had a lot of the NASL scouts. You know, I remember there was Peter Short from Minnesota and Ray Klaveka from New York Cosmos, Francisco Marcos with the Tampa Bay Rowdies. And uh, there might've been somebody there from the St. Louis Stars. So after, after that, you know, now you go back and <laughs> by the time I made it back to St. Louis, because of the weather, some of the high school games uh, in the playoffs for the state championship got postponed, but because I'd already played for the U.S., I S I wasn't allowed to play in the, you know, in the finals, but anyway, hopefully that's all changed. So beginning in January, I started getting the calls from these professional scouts saying, look, you know, we, you know, is there an interest there? You know, if we go to draft you to make sure we don't wait to draft pick. So sure enough, you know, it uh, you know, I was talking to colleges because at that time being at St. Louis, a lot of the players either went to St. Louis university, or SIU, and some of the guys just started going to Indiana University, but in 1979, all the guys I grew up with, you know, most of those guys went to SIU, and they won the national championship that year. But um, so again, I'm not saying what college I would have went to by choice, but it was going to be a difficult decision because you know you're kind of split which way you go. Um, but you know, I started getting the calls, and you know, I just told them the interest was there. And I don't forget my hometown team was called the St. Louis Stars which later became the California surf. And my parents and I went to meet him at the hotel in St. Louis. And, uh, one of my youth coaches, Bob O'Leary was actually a player there. So he became one of my mentors too. And, uh, he says, Hey, you need to ask him, you know, if they draft you, what you're going to make. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'll never forget. I get to the meeting and, you know, you, you listen to all He says, you know, if, if I get drafted, I mean, what, what are we making? And John Sewell says, it doesn't matter. We're still going to, we're still going to draft you. <laughs> okay. So, they uh, they knew how to handle it, but um, you know so for sure. I thought I was going to be drafted by the St. Louis Stars. They had second pick. They told me we we're going to take you, and it wasn't until I was uh, I was in school and you know I got a call over the uh, loudspeaker to come to the office, and they said you know your parents are on the phone and they said look you've been drafted by the Tampa Bay Rowdies and they want to do an interview so uh, you know you need to come home because you know back then we didn't have cell phones or anything like that, and uh, so that's when I knew you know I was becoming a Tampa Bay Rowdy. Now, having said that, I did. Again, I was still in high school, but because of the the coaches that we had at our youth club, they invited me to come to their professional training with the St. Louis Stars. Now, some of them trained every day, but not all of them. So I didn't make all the training sessions. But the head coach there, John Sewell, he says, "Look, you know, we don't want you, we don't want you to lose your, your college eligibility. So as far as I know, you're not here. Okay, but go ahead and jump in the group." So I got the experience that way. So that's how to kind of you know you kind of get scouted. So it was through that tournament in Monaco, which we had, you know, some of the top players in the United States at that time. And obviously through you know, my hometown that uh, you know, obviously I got the opportunity to, you know, kind of play with older players. And, and, and then that, that that's when I got drafted
0: can you talk maybe a little bit about um, you know some of the years uh, in, in Tampa, you know, it seemed like uh, in 78, 79 you know, it, it, there was that rivalry with the Cosmos, getting to the finals, but not being able to just get over that hump and, and, and get one of those championships. Um, maybe touch on that a little bit. And then I was gonna get into Eddie Fermani as well.
2: Okay, so so Dave, you're spot on, right? We, we had a big rivalry with the Cosmos and also we had a big rivalry with Fort Lauderdale Strikers. And, um, and again, just to let you guys know that when I was in eighth grade, Um, You know, back in St. Louis, obviously it's changed now, but you grew up playing in a league called the CYC, the Catholic Youth Council. The reason I bring that up is, you know, there's a lot of predominantly Catholics in St. Louis. When I joined in 1978, the league, there was 24 teams in the NASL and almost every team had a St. Louis player. So I'd be playing against guys that I played against in grade school. It was it it was unbelievable. You know how how that all worked out. But, um, you know, you come down to the uh, play the rowdies. And again, when I talk about to Jake, when I mentioned the big crowds, that's when you're playing against the cosmos, you know, you got Giorgio Canely and Paley had already retired in 77. I didn't start till 78, but Canely and Bogusevich and Julio Cesar Romero. And, you know, Burke, American Gol and Eskandarian, you know, here I am 42 years later, you just, you just don't forget these guys. And uh, so that was always the big game. You know, even when we played in New York, just to get a result, it just like that was the, one of the biggest games of the season. So, and, and again, our marketing department, you know, they really didn't have to spend a lot of money on that because they just knew, look, hey, the Cowboys are coming to town. You know they're, they're, you know, they're the darlings of the league. They've got so-called some of the best players in the world. And, and guess what, you know what, let's go Rowdies. And we also had the same kind of uh, uh, rivalry with the Fort Lauderdale Strikers. But I was gonna say, when I was in eighth grade, I went to the World Cup in 1974. And, you know, I've got to see, you know, Germany, back then it was West Germany play three times. And one of the best players, strikers ever was Gerd Mueller. And at the back, they had Franz Beckenbauer. And four years later, I'm oh, yeah. playing in the same league against them. So that was something that I didn't yeah. expect, but it's like, okay, here they are on the world stage. I'm in eighth grade. And then four years later, you know, I'm playing for the Tampa Bay Rowdies against Franz Beckenbauer or against Gerd Mueller who's playing for the Fort Lauderdale strikers. So, um, You know, and that's that's one thing, David. You know, playing in the league, there was a lot of great players that came from Europe, Uh, Johan Cruyff and Alan Ball, and you know, I just don't want to go through them all to to, to leave some of those guys out. But uh, the respect was there, and you know, just you know, being on the field with those guys, and you know, just uh, that's that was amazing. And you know, those things are just you know, uh, they last a lifetime, uh, you know, with with your memory.
1: You guys trade jerseys
2: always. I've got, a, I've got a good collection. So I always did that, but uh, you know, and again, you know, playing here with Tampa, obviously, you know, Rodney Marsh was uh, arguably, you know, our, our best player. And unfortunately, you know, I came here in 78, he played in 78 and 79. So the last Jersey he ever wore in the 79 soccer bowl final, we played against the Cosmos. Um, obviously we, we lost that game and uh, you know, he gave me his Jersey and just, uh, you know, it's just, you know, those things you don't forget playing against Johan Cruyff the first time here, uh, Canelia, Beckenbauer when I was playing with team America. But, um, yeah, those, you know, and again, you go down to Fort Lauderdale, David, and you know, it's, it's, it's just a bus ride down there for our fans and, you know, 18,000 people and, you know, ABC, why sports on a Sunday afternoon. And, you know, you can obviously Google, you can see, um, uh, you know, the, the, atmosphere. So it's, um, and they had some of the top players in the world too. So it was like a who's who, you know, through the NASL when we lost to the Vancouver Whitecaps, you know, Alan Ball and Trevor Weimark and some of these guys that, uh, you know, were, were stars back in the UK before they came across. All
0: right, and what, and what what was it like playing for Eddie Fermanio throughout those years?
2: You know, unfortunately, I didn't play for Eddie. Eddie left um, after and they won the championship in '75, and then Eddie left shortly oh, after okay. that to join the Cosmos. So my first head coach was Gordon Jago. And oh, uh, okay, it was Gordon, yeah, Jago. yeah. And again, David, Gordon was, you know, he's you know he's my first coach, professional coach, and I'll never ever forget that. And every time him and I, we bumped into each other, you know, it's a reminiscing and a great conversation. I have a lot of respect for the man, you know, to have the confidence, you know, to draft me and to obviously, you know, bring me along. Because, again, at that time, you know, they were looking to develop American players. And, you know, we only had maybe five or six guys in the team. But, you know, the ones that were there were, you know, we had to work hard. We just couldn't, you know, assume that, you know, obviously you're going to get some playing time. And uh, unfortunately, you know, you only had to have two players in, on the field, and there was only two players. Very seldom that, you know. Now, as as it went on, they changed that. It got to three, and eventually got to five, but uh, you know, it was taking a step at a time. Even though there was no promotion relegation, it was all about you know winning titles, whether it be the Eastern Conference and, and, and the Soccer Bowl final, you know. And again, when I first came here, going to the Soccer Bowl final both years in 79, you know, you're just shaking your head. It's like, okay, you know, I play for one of the best teams in the league. And then, you know, we started playing in the indoor and we actually won that championship. So then I followed Gordon to Dallas. So after the NASL folded in, in, in 84, I went to the MSL and that, that was my first team in Dallas.
1: What was it like in those years in terms of Biden? you were with the Rowdies for six or seven years uh, in the NASL. And then during that same time period, I assume it's in the winter, you play also for the Tampa Bay Rowdies in the indoor league. What, was yeah,
2: so what happened jake was um <clears throat> excuse me um yeah the season usually started around march april the outdoor season and then um we finished you know again it, it got longer and longer so when i started seven, eight, maybe it was four or five months long then it became six then it became seven months long all right and another league popped up the misl the major indoor soccer league and that was really you know flourishing so the nasl says okay well hang on a second you know their league you know kind of overlaps our league so that's when the NASL started their indoor league and it wasn't until the nesl folded that the players were released and you know there's like seven or eight of us that joined the misl the following season so um it's just like you know you're right jake it's a different game um as far as the fans go it didn't matter if we were playing indoor outdoor on another planet our they, our fans followed us everywhere you know we played some games in St. Pete at the Bayfront Center. We played at another facility out in Lakeland, but the fans would travel and they would support us. And it was kind of a break for us, but you know the traveling was still there because again, you know, we, we had to travel out, but um, you know, the endo was fun. It was it was uh, obviously a different game as I, I said before, but you know, we enjoyed it and um, you know, we were we were good at it. And and so was was San Diego. I mean, that's, you know, the San Diego Soccers an absolute dynasty in the nasl and misl with ron newman Um, but again you know those are the teams we're playing up against before they joined the misl
1: yeah i've been to one indoor league as a fan one of my old binghamton teammates was playing for the rochester lancers against the syracuse silver knights and i went to a game and i was like it was just down the road from binghamton i was still in college and i was like all right i'll go I'll, i'll catch your first game whatever and the atmosphere was awesome Like it was like the on center or something in Syracuse, and five thousand people just going crazy. And it's like, it's uh, just maybe because indoors it's a packed, it's like very small venue. There's a lot of action in the NBA game. It was like, that's that's, it was pretty awesome. It's something that if my body is still uh, functioning by the time I play, I'm playing outdoor. I think I would I would enjoy playing indoor for a year or two.
2: Yeah, it's a physical game, but let me just say this to you. Growing up in St. Louis, obviously you got the winter months. So we as players, you know, if we wanted to continue training, you know, we're playing inside gymnasiums. Now, again, you're not using the boards or anything like that, but, you know, playing indoor soccer, whatever we could. In fact, uh, you know, former national team player, Mike Sorber, his dad, Pete Sorber, was the head coach at Florissant Valley Community College. And on Monday nights, we used to get up there and just a lot of pickup games. And that, you know, we look back, we think, okay, you know, that helped in our development. You know, we just went up there, you know, we just, everybody got a different penny, we're on different teams. And, you know, we just we just played in, you know, for two or three hours. And that's, you know, that that's where a lot of us, you know, became better players. Um, but growing up in St. Louis, when they had the team there called the St. Louis Steamers, I had played for them their last season. But up until that point, you know, there was times where they were outdrawn the St. Louis Blues hockey team. You know, they had 17,000, 19,000 standing room only. And they were successful. Um, you know, and, and as you said, you, you know, when I went to Dallas, I mean, you know, one of the players tattooed and what made it so interesting because, you know, fans like to see goals and every time he scored a goal, you know, he'd jump on the boards, you know, take his jersey off and throw it in the stands and, you know, the people, they just, they just love that atmosphere. And, um, you know, for a while there, I would say from, uh, gosh, 83 all the way through, you know, beginning of the 90s, that that was the viable league in this country. So...
0: Um, it was difficult just Not for... to jump around too much. Okay. Oh, Go ahead, David. Oh, sorry. We were kind of. I was kind of. I'm kind of. The feed's cutting a little loud on me, but um, just one thing I was curious about. Not to jump around too much with the with the topics, but just going back to the national team, um, in the build up to the '90 World Cup, because I know you, you, your your te- your career with the national team ended. With that, you know, '85, I guess, right into the '86 cycle. But I remember in the build-up to the '90 World Cup, I remember Ricky Davis trying to make an effort to to get in and, and play and and get onto the national team. Was there were there any thoughts in, in your head because you're still a fairly young guy? You know, I I'm, I'm not sure you know whether you felt like you were at your best as a player at that point or not. But was that in the back of your head to try to get back in and and make a run at that '90 World Cup?
2: Uh, Yeah, David, it was. In fact, um, you know, again, a lot of us guys were playing indoor soccer. And it was unfortunate because, you know, there were some very, very good players, you know, like Chico Barraha and Bruce Savage, and these guys had just played in the 84 Olympics. And, you know, so they were Ricky Davis, we were only playing indoors. So that the consideration was that, you know, we wanted to continue on. After we didn't qualify for the 86 World Cup, there was quite a few players that, uh, you know, were older on the team that weren't considered. But, you know, in those qualifiers, you had Hugo Perez, you had um, Paul Caligieri, uh Jeff Hooker, Johnny Kerr, and I'm just, you know, um, Bruce Murray. So some of those guys were just at the beginning of their national team careers, where people like myself and Angelo DiBernardo and, you know, Ricky Davis and Arnie Mauser were kind of towards Danny Canner, towards the end of ours. You know, it's, it's gonna be a new cycle. And um, so that's, you know, those are the things we're up against. And then, you know, I had a couple injuries um, I broke my fifth metatarsal and you know back then it was just a very hard bone to heal and I was out for quite a long time and so you know those things all come into play when you know the preparation starts for you know the world cup and again you know there there were some changes made obviously uh, you know Bobby Ganser became the head coach which I have immense respect for and um, you know again he left uh, you know the players that I just mentioned kind of out of the team obviously Ricky was in consideration but he ended up you know getting injured and you know and 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 obviously you know they just move forward without him and qualified and you know next thing you know you know he's, he's got a squad so a lot of those players that went to 90 very few were in our 86 team you know and the 86 qualifiers were, were different than the 82 so just like you know sometimes right. coaches they just, they just cycle out and that's what happened but to answer your question yes you know that was you know you want to play as long as you can for your country you know and and, and again it just uh you know comes a time where you know, unfortunately, all us guys are playing indoor, making a living. We're not playing the outdoor game, you know, where, you know, like you see like guys like Stevie Chichu and Johnny Harks and Tab Ramos and, and all those guys are, they're playing, you know, in colleges and, and, uh, and, and outdoor games as much as they can. And I think whether they qualified or not for the 1990, that that was going to be the team, obviously for the, you know, they, a lot of those guys were around for the 94 World Cup also.
0: Mm.
2: But you well, were still, we still- young
0: at that point, too. So that that, yeah. that was the one thing that popped into my head. You weren't, wasn't like, you know, you were, uh, you know, a little more advanced, like a 32, 33 year old. You know, you were still probably what, in your late 20s and, and still, you know, probably in your prime, you know, years in terms of a soccer player.
2: Yeah, I would have been 30 years old you
0: know, then. Oh, I, 30. Okay. Yeah.
2: Okay. So okay. I was, you know, I, you know and again, um, you know, they say, you know, things change. And, um, you know, it's unfortunate because I look at the 86 team. I don't think anyone was involved in the 90s. I think it was all new players. But, you know, obviously Ricky got injured. You know, I had my fair share of injuries. And um, so, you know, they just, uh, you know, going with, you know, some guys that, you know, if they didn't make it that year, then, you know what, those guys would continue and, and, and get the experience and obviously go for 94, which obviously we right. didn't have to qualify. Right.
1: What was the league? And when you went back from the indoor game back to the outdoor game with the Rowdies again, uh, between like the late eighties and early nineties, what was the league the Rowdies were in then?
2: Oh, that was called the APSL, the American the APSL. professional soccer league. And, um, again, you know, it's, it's, it wasn't nowhere near what the NESL was by any means. And, um, and again, it was just a viable league for players that, you know, still wanting to play professionally in the outdoor league. But as I said, a lot of the players, um, you know, the higher level players were playing in the MISL. But I remember you taking, I think Chico Borja, his brother Ramiro, Johnny Harks. Um, those guys were playing up in Albany. So, you know, we had some very, very talented outdoor players, Gene Harbour, Philip Jow, Kevin Sloan, um, uh, Jeff Agus, you know, now Jeff was playing in Maryland, but you know, for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. Um, but again, that was the league. It was called the American Professional Soccer League. So, and again, it was um you know it kind of just started after the misl season and again all those players were released
0: to go back and play in the misl so it wasn't like they were on year-round contracts and you had guys like trichrew and, and and peter Vermees playing with you in tampa a bit right
2: yes we did two very good players very good players yeah, yeah. and in fort lauderdale fort lauderdale had uh, tony miola uh the the san francisco blackhawks had uh eric rinalda I mentioned Johnny Harks was playing up in New, uh, New Jersey. I'm trying to think like, you know, Bruce Murray and Johnny Kerr, some of those guys were playing for a team called the Washington Stars. There was a team in New Jersey. So there was probably 12, 13 teams in the league at one time. And uh, uh, another guy, um, Marcelo Babo, was playing for Colorado along with Robin Frazier. And, you know, so, so, you know, those guys were all spread out and it, it was a good team. And again, you know, we're all playing 12 months out of the year. It's just that it wasn't always outdoor soccer you played indoor and then you played outdoor but again until the united states was awarded the world cup and that surplus of money to start a professional league that's kind of the way it was back then you know so people might think well why did you do that, that, that there wasn't any other options you know we just we just always wanted to play so and again when i was playing indoor i've always got my residence in tampa so i'd always come back here and play in the outdoor season so playing 48 regular indoor games plus playoffs and coming back and play another 16, 22 outdoor games, you know, that that wasn't out of the question, so.
1: Being that you, as a 17 year old, you went away to Monaco in front of NASL scouts, international scouts, was there ever a point in your career where you had an opportunity to be like, either go over to Europe or just say, all right, let me go try over in Europe, or was that just not the case back in those years?
2: Um, That's a good question, Jake, because again, uh, Gordon Jago being my first coach, um, when I came here in 78, by no means was I thrust into the lineup. I was still playing for the Pan Am team. I was playing and we're doing qualifiers. We're doing qualifiers for the Olympic team. And one thing that Gordon Jagu was always good about, he says country before club. So anytime the Federation reached out, it wasn't like he ever tried to hold us back. He says, you know what? We had a player here called Wes McLeod, Winston DeBose, uh, other American players and Canadians that were starters on the team to begin with. So he was just, you know, kind of bringing me to the lineup. You know, it just didn't thrust me in. So now, you know, getting those opportunities to go and play, um, you know, internationally, you know, obviously, you know, you know it, it wasn't a problem, but um, I don't know. It's, um, you know, you,
1: anyway. <laughs> I, was that. It, I mean, it, it's tough. Like, it, during that period, everybody was playing the indoor to the outdoor. Yeah. And it's tough to just be like, all right. Like, kind of in the late 90s, early 2000s, that's when you hear the stories about who's the center back? Uh, what's his name? He, he, he went over and he ended up playing for the national team. Uh, he end, he just was like, all right, I'm going to go over to England, stay on a buddy's couch, start in the eighth division, work my way up. You right. hear more, what, what's his name? I forgot his name. Um, he, he wrote a book. Jay DeMera. DeMar- yeah. Uh, you hear those stories more in kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, as, like, the Americans – for, for, to the credit of someone like a John Harks, who was a trailblazer over there, um, they have those opportunities. But kind of when you're generating, I, I, I would just imagine it'd be very difficult to be like, tell your girlfriend or your whatever. Right, I'm going to go over to Germany and just go on trials. And they're like, what do you mean? Like, So I, I could definitely well, imagine.
2: Yeah, Jake, I did do that. So Gordon Jago sent me over to, um, it was before the U-17 World Cup that we played in Honduras. Mm-hmm. and that would have been in 78 okay so it's a CONCACAF U-17 qualifiers for the World Cup and um, you know so I went to Arsenal I was trained at the Arsenal for six months um, and during that time I had opportunities I was you know doing a little bit of training at Millwall and but again you're at the Arsenal with Liam Brady and Graham Ricks and you know Alan Sunderland and it just you know they were that was back in the first division, but I spent six months there. So every year, and then in 1980-81, Francisco Marcos took five of us players, and we went down to Sao Paulo. And again, there was an opportunity for me to sign for a team in Sao Paulo, uh, in the state, not for Sao Paulo, but in the state of Sao Paulo. And because um, we were just going out of the train, and you know, on our trip down there, there was there was five of us, and um, you know, we got scouted, and you know, I thought something was going to happen. <laughs> But reality hit when, you know, when I was talking to the club and they were negotiating, it's like, Perry, you know, if you get injured, we're not so sure, you know, they're going to pay for it. You know, it just, there was all that, you know, what if, what if. So I never ended up signing, just came back here and, you know, obviously continue playing for the Rowdies. And that was only going to be a loan deal. It wasn't like, you know, they were selling my rights or anything like that. So, Jake, any time, you know, any player gets that opportunity, obviously, you know, you got to look at it. And you look at the players now, obviously, the evolution from, you say, like, take a guy like Jada Merritt or even a guy like Stevie Chichar after the World Cup goes plays in the Czech Republic. So Johnny Harks, the trailblazer, you know, goes to play over for Sheffield. You know, um, you had Eric then you had um, Paul Caligiuri. You know, now you look at a guy like Josh Sargent, you look at Gio Reyna, you look at Christian Pulisic. So and again, I keep mentioning the word evolution, but that's what it takes. You know, these guys, they're getting recognized. You know, it hasn't gone as fast as we want it to go, but you know, look, there's 10, 12 guys playing in the Champions League. It's, for me, it's a matter of time. This is a new frontier. You know, these guys that, you know, they know what it takes. We have a viable league. We have a very good league, you know, and it's, you know, there's some drawbacks, you know, to MLS, but still at the the time, you know, you're signing guys that are 14, 15, 16 years old, the homegrown contracts. What more can you expect? These guys are in training every day. You look at the Philadelphia Union, some of the players they've turned around, okay? would we like more yeah but you know what jake you know look at you know my era then i look at you know the era you've played in you know and obviously you know you're still playing but it's one of those where you know it you know it's taking take a little bit of time so you know it had to start somewhere There's guys back in st louis that i looked up to and then you know you just you know as 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 it goes by you know i think you know it's it's moving forward you know but you know it it just takes time
1: yeah for sure. I, in my period, we didn't even have, the my like junior and senior year of high school, we had the academy was just starting. Mm-hmm. And so we had our big thing then was ODP. And that is, you it was ridiculous because you'd go on a Monday night, at least in New York, we'd go train, drive two hours on a Monday night, have an okay session, drive back. And that was it. For the, that was it for the week. And it'd be like, <laughs> I mean, the academy is, for, well, it's not, technically around anymore at, in, at least in its current form but it's four five six days a week and it's high level training and it's all this and i mean odp was trying to do the right thing in terms of bringing all the right uh, the best players together but it's like you're saying it's the evolution things continue to improve and and then 10 to 15 years from now things are going to be a little different and hopefully they'll be a little bit better
2: oh you know i'm sure i'm sure they will obviously you know i think we you know we're, we're, we're i wouldn't say we're ahead of the game but you know you look at our, our coaches now you know, Greg Berhalter, you know, obviously the position he's in. You look at Jesse Marsh, you know, getting the opportunity over in, in, in Europe. You know, Bob Bradley, Bruce Arena. I mean, these guys, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're icons. They, they've turned it around. Um, but again, back in the day when I was playing the NESL, you have Gordon Jago. You've got a Ron Newman. You've got an Eddie Fermati. You've got a Renus You know, and I mentioned international coaches. You know, back when I was playing in the 17s, the U.S. Soccer Federation was mirrored after the German Football Federation, Detmar Kramer. And so whatever they were doing, tactically, technically, functionally, you know what? We mirrored that. But now obviously, you know, we've got our own identity. Or we're leaning towards our own identity. So, it, you know, it, it does change. But going back to your point where, you know, it's just you having the academy. I never had that experience. You know, there's a guy that played for the round. He's Jeff Antonella. And we kind of reminisce sometimes like, you know, we can only imagine, you know, training four nights a week and then playing against high level competition not just in your state, you know, when they have those showcases. So now you know where you're at. Now all of a sudden MLS gets involved and now it's, you know, there, there's no pay to play. You know, you make the team, you're in it. And you look at the Philadelphia Union and New York Red Bull, you know, they've got their own schools now uh, where, where they go to school and obviously they come back. And, you know, so MLS, I, whether it be next year or the year after, they're gonna have their own reserve league. So again, it just, um, you know, it just takes time, but uh, we'll, we'll get there,
0: you know, bright future. You, 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 we've been touching on MLS and I just wanted to get uh jump back into your, your days in, in MLS with, the, with the mutiny and just kind of get your thoughts on, you know, a pretty eventful few years there for you with, uh, uh, you know, working as, as a coach and then working with players like Valderrama, Thomas Rivelli uh, and some Americans like Stevie Ralston and Frank Gator.
2: Yeah, you're right, David. I mean, there was, there was some good players there and obviously some characters. So um you know, I was still at the end of my indoor career here with a team called the Tampa Bay Terror, which was in the NPSL. So I didn't start with the team the very first year, but uh, shortly after that, obviously a position came open to work in the front office. So as I wound my career down, you know, I jumped into the front office, which I feel very, very fortunate to do. Um, worked a season there. And then obviously, uh, you know, the, the coaching staff, the technical side started making some changes and I became part of that. So Tim Hankinson, who was you know with MLS when it first started? He was the Project Forty coach, and again, I don't know if everybody understands, but the Tampa Bay Mutiny were a league-owned franchise, so the league you know run us uh, ran, ran the team, and again, the reason I think you know because of the history of the Rowdies, you know they said you know what we can put a franchise in Tampa, and you know obviously um, you know they were <laughs> that, that that that's how things were run. So um, you know the first head coach was Thomas uh, Rongen. And the general manager was Fruit Karouchi and they were very, very successful on the field. They had the MVP of the league. Uh, I think it was Valderrama. They had the Sporter Shield. They had the Rookie of the Year. They had the scoring championship, uh, Roy Lassiter. The only thing they didn't do was win the championship and Thomas was the coach of the year. So, um, you know, at the end of the year, obviously some changes were made and they brought in some new coaches. And then it was after that uh, coaching staff that I got involved with Tim Hankinson, he became the head coach and I was the assistant, but um, um, again, it, you know, it was different times, you know, back then we started with 10 teams, went to 12, then back down to 10. And, um, you know, when, you know, there were certain rules, it was a single entity. And, um, I don't know if some of them were made up, but, uh, you know, you don't always get things to go your way. And obviously, you know, you're looking for draft picks and, and, and trades and, and things like that. So, um, uh, yeah, we were, we were warriors back then and, um. You know, I give credit to all the people that are involved that started the league. Um, and, you know, some are still there. I think uh, Todd Durbin's still there. And, and uh, I think the president of the league, uh, Mark, um, sorry, I can't think of his name. But, um, you know, those guys, they, they've been there from the start. And you look at back then, when it started, and it was on the brink of, you know, folding to where it is now. And again, I just see, you know, an upward trajectory. It just, it just keeps growing. So, you know, I give credit to all those people involved. You know, they've, they've spent a lot of time in the game. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's, it's that, that's, that's where the success comes from.
0: Any, any good stories about Valderrama or Valderrama doing his hair or anything like that?
2: You know, what he was, you know, what he was, he was a good professional, I, I must say. Um, you know, obviously, you know, there was a language barrier. Um, you know, he's a little bit older and, but, uh, you know, he, he understood English. He was very, gosh, very sincere you know, and, 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 you know, a little bit on the quiet side, but once he got going and, and, you know, cause I remember one of the players, I don't want to mention his name, had to go in my practice when the American guys, it went on for a half hour. I mean, it just wouldn't stop. Carlos was just not going to give up. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was one time on the field down in Fort Lauderdale, we had Mamadou Diallo mm-hmm. who his first year in the league became the, uh, the leading goal scorer. But of course, you know, he's got Valderrama and Stevie Ralston, you know, serving him the ball. So, you know, how could you go wrong? And, um, It was interesting because, you know, Tim Hankinson being an experienced coach, he could just see there was a clash on the field that day between Valderrama and and Mamadou. And uh, I mean, he says, Perry, he says, you know what? As Soon as the whistle blows, he says, I just want you to take off for that locker room. He says, I think, you know, things are gonna get a little bit tough in there. So sure enough, during his halftime speech, I find myself in between the two of them. I had no idea if something was gonna happen, what I was gonna do, but you know, he wanted me in between of them. And sure enough, they both spoke French. Because one time Carlos was over in France playing and I didn't understand what they were saying. But I tell you, it, you know, the, the, the passion, the, the, the vulgarity, it just you could just see it all, David. I mean, just, it wasn't going to stop. And Mamadou says, that's it. I'm done. I, I, I'm not going to play. So Tim says, hey, you know what, you know, just you just take the team back on the field. He says, you know, get him up there. He says, you know, let me work on Mamadou. I says, all right. So we take the team back on the field. You know, and then next to you know, ball goes out of bounds. Tim's raising his hand, you know, trying to get Mamadou back on the field. Comes on and scores the winner. <laughs> after that, <laughs> after that, the was like a best of friends. it was amazing. Look, I quit. I've, I've had enough. I mean, I'll never forget you guys and see me, but Raul Arama took his finger and put it into Mamadou's cheek, you know, trying to egg him on. And it just, the guy was, you know, I mean, he looked like Lennox Lewis. He was massive, but it's just, uh, you know, he wasn't going he was, he to back down. So... But we had some, we had some moments because, you know, there were both, both those guys were when I would, Mamadou was more high maintenance, but Carlos was just, you know, he was just class. And then, you know, David, what an opportunity, you know, here we are, we take the team to Columbia to play in some exhibition games. It's like getting on the plane with Michael Jordan. It's like, <laughs> they don't leave him alone. All right. Here we are flying from, you know, we flew from Tampa to Miami, Miami to uh, Bogota. They don't leave him alone. I mean, it just, every person on the plane, the flight attendants, I think, you know, the, the, The pilots were taking turns and coming back and sitting next to them and getting their pictures. Now you get on the bus and you go to the hotel. There's a whole shrine set up at the hotel. All right. And now the TV camera's there. So every time, you know, we'd come downstairs to go to practice, he'd have to sit down and do an interview. Then you get to the games and they got all these big, you know, uh, TIFAs in the stands. And it's just, and you know what? He didn't say no to anybody. All right. He he just loved it. He loved it. And, um, you know, and and he loved being in Tampa. He did, I use the word, traded. But he did leave tampa to go to miami to start the fusion again tampa being a league-owned team you know we need a marquee player so now he moves down to miami he didn't like it down there all right and he couldn't wait to come back to tampa and sure enough he comes back to tampa and you know obviously bought a house here his kids were growing up here i don't know if he's still here but you know i know do know that he st- still comes back and, and visits but again you know what the mutiny took care of him too. You know, we had Wig Knight and things like that. You know, he was our icon player. And i tell you what, David, when he was on, he was on. I mean, when he felt it, you know, the things yeah. he could do with the ball, it was just amazing. And again, you know, being an American player, seeing a lot of American kids in the stands, they idolized him. And that, you know, that that for me just helps grow the game. You know, they, they, they come to the game, they watch him, you know, they, they get what they paid for. And, you know, next thing do, they go back, they're playing in their leagues and then they're trying to emulate them. And Jake, you know that, you know, seeing you know brilliant players that you've grown up with so because back in the day you know i'm much older than you guys um we only had what's called soccer made in jersey uh in germany by uh, toby charles so you know that, that you know and that was once a week so now you know you get you know get games on every day so and i've always explained to players you, know, you got to become a student of the game you got to watch it all right we're all visual you know coaches can talk and they can diagram but you just get to watch these
0: players and that's how you learn so I am yeah. a big fan of soccer made in Germany. <laughs> oh, Remember David? Oh,
2: I tell you, that was great. Regular, regular
0: watching. I have.
2: Yeah. Yes. Was, I grew it, up with that. That was it. Yeah. Well, that was it. You know. And then you had Soccer America, which was a newspaper that came in your mailbox. But uh, you know, those were the days. And you know, being you know passionate about the game, or what we call soccer junkies, you just try to get your hands on anything. I'll never forget. You know, I used to get some of these uh, European magazines like Shoot and Four v Four and stuff like that. You know, and here you know you're looking at these pictures and, you know, here I'm, you know, three or four years later, I'm playing with these guys. So they were at the end of their careers. and I was just beginning mine.
1: Yeah, I never quite understand players and there's plenty of them out there that say, oh, I don't watch games or especially your own league. Uh, you should be watching. I know you like guys who don't watch whatever USL or whatever league they're in. It's, it, do, it doesn't make much sense to me. Uh, but after your, you became head coach uh, with the Mutiny just for a short period. And after that, uh, you went on to kind of more of the front office role with the Rowdies for like, was it 2008, 2016? Um, what was that ex- kind of experience like? Uh, I actually, so in my first year in the league, you were still with the Rowdies at the beginning. Um, what was that like with the Rowdies, your hometown, or not hometown, but your, the, the city that you love and spending so much time with what seems like a first class organization? I think you guys won. Um, the NASL, one of the years at least. Uh, so, what was that like?
2: Yeah, we won the league in 2012. So again, you know, David, uh, obviously David's not there, but so you know, Jake, what you're bringing up here is, you know, with the Tampa Bay Mutiny, yeah. So the league, I'm, I'm sorry, the team folded after uh, 2009, eleven in 2001. So it was very unfortunate. You I know, mean, we're back to 10, ten teams, and here, you know, you've had professional soccer. Now there was a gap when the Rowdies folded in '84 obviously you know mls but now all of a sudden we had an mls in our backyard and now we don't have it so that was very frustrating um you know again i wanted to continue to coach but you go from 12 teams to 10 teams you know none, none of those teams are looking for coaches mm-hmm. so you know, you, you know you're you sitting around and you know you're, you're working with youth clubs and you know you work with some colleges and next thing you know the usl home office was here in tampa and there was a couple of investors that had been to the league meetings the year before so i knew there was a possibility that they were going to bring a team here and sure enough they did so uh, the what i call the rebirth of the rowdies that was in 2008 but we didn't start playing until 2010 um, but being with the club at the beginning from the very beginning um, it was it was again you know something that you know you just it's like it it did stop but it's like it never stopped because now all of a sudden you know i was used for many things in the community and for you know reaching out to players and so you know guys that you've played with or played against are now coaches in other clubs um you know being out in the community people that remember the rowdies or have been to the games in the past so now they're all excited about you know now we have the you know the rowdies are coming back they all want to be involved Uh, they remember the atmosphere from before so when we first started you know, that first initiative of, you know, hey, look, you know, we're back on the map and this is what we're going to do. It was very, very exciting times. Um, we did want to start in 2009, but, you know, it was just, we're just pushing it a little bit too much. And again, you know, if you remember, you know, kind of the, the market was down and, you know, we were going through some tough times because our investors, we really wanted to build a, a smaller stadium, kind of like they had in Charleston, where it was brick and mortar on one side and kind of the stands on the other, kind of uh, kind of like right in, right in the heart of, you know, right by the airport. And, you know, they was with the plans and obviously, you know, they kind of went sideways, you know, because of the market. And we started opening up at the, uh, at the Yankees complex, which is right across the street uh, from uh, Raymond James Stadium. Um, you know, unfortunate, you know, being in the second division with the budget we had, that's that's where we're at. There was no way that we could afford the $100,000 rent <laughs> that was at Raymond James Stadium per game. So, but, you know, they said, hey, look, if you guys get to be big and grow, you know, well, we're, we're here for you. Well, obviously that didn't happen. <laughs> So we ended up playing our first season in Tampa, and then we moved over to St. Pete at Alang Stadium. And, uh, and again, just being involved in the front office, there was a lot of things that needed to be done and, and, and get that situated and, you know, and obviously get some sponsors and, and, and everybody else on board. Obviously building the team the very first year. Um, you know, we, um, we did okay. Obviously there was 12 teams in the league and it was called the, the I think you and I said, United States Soccer Federation Division II because there was a thing going on between the USL and the NASL at the time, you know, when teams are trying to, there's, down. there's a
1: shock for you. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> so they settled that the first year and then that's how we broke off into the NASL. And, um, and again, Jake, you were part of that. So you understand, but uh, you know, when we first started playing over in St. Pete um, you know, it's, it's a little bit smaller than Tampa and you know, they have their baseball team there and you know, I'll be honest with you, you know, we made the playoffs, you know, sort of the first or second year and I'm trying to put some posters in some of the store windows and they're like, eh, we're not really sure. Well, hang on a second. You know, there's people that come to the games and after the games, they need some place to go, but it just didn't catch on right away. And now it's really caught on because there's been some success with the team. Obviously won the championship in 2012. And then Mr. Edwards, Bill Edwards, who bought the team in 2014, 2015. And obviously he really put a lot of money into the, the stadium. He, uh, he renovated it. He did a fantastic job it's probably one of the best stadiums, if not the best in the USL it's right on the water. There's, um, you know, it's a great town, downtown area. And again, any player that comes and plays there. Okay. Obviously the home locker room looks great, but we also took care of the opposing locker room because we wanted players to think that they look, you know what, this is a first class franchise. So again, kudos to, you know, everybody that was involved with that. It, um, you know, kind of really, you know, put tamp on the map for, for, for that league. And, um, and, and, and continues to do so. So, and again, they had another successful year this year. And, um, but again, just, you know, going through becoming a player or being a player, then, you know, obviously you get into the front office, you know, I wore many hats. And again, I was comfortable doing that because, you know, just being here, growing up with the team, you know, I, I had the confidence. And then, you know, you're out there and, you know, because of the success we had, you get the respect from the community. It wasn't like we're just trying to say, hey, look, we're a new team in town. Now, again, I don't want to get into the story, but when we first started, we called ourselves the Rowdies, and then we ran into a little bit of a problem because there was a gap between the NESL and now the rebirth of the Rowdies. So there was a company in, I think it was in Texas, that had the the rights to the the marketing for, for the Rowdies. So until that was settled, we were called FC Tampa. And that really wasn't going to fly because, you know, the the Rowdies being an iconic brand, that wasn't a problem. We knew that that was going to fly. And, you know, here we are today, the merchandise, you know, the fannies, people still reminisce, you know, the club started here in 1975 and again, a very successful, you know, winning the championship the very first year in 75 in the soccer bowl, 78 and 79, winning the indoor championship and 79 80 and also again in 83. So it just, you know, and, Again, we won the championship again in 2012. People associate going to Rowdy's games as being a great time, uh, the place to be. And so, you know, when you hear about it, it's just like, oh, you know what? We had so much fun. Our kids kind of grew up with them, you know, household names and, 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 and that all played a part. So, so what I'm saying here is, Jake, is that, you know, we had to do some selling, but not as much as just like a startup franchise. Okay, we yeah. were already, you know, we were already here, you know, and been here. So, yeah. is-
1: as a visiting player, uh, I think I played there maybe three or four times over, or probably three, no, twice. twice. It was just the 2016 season uh, that the rowdies were in the NASL. And we would stay at the hotel. It was like a Hilton, like right across the street. You walk down, take the elevator down, walk across the street. You're here at this beautiful stadium. And normally, I do not like baseball stadiums, like converted into soccer. But this one, just for whatever reason, I mean, because there's no baseball being played on it, it just works perfectly. The pitch is beautiful. Like you said, it's right on the water. You kick the ball far enough, you, you go into the ocean or whatever it is over there. And it's I mean, it's a it's a beautiful place to play. And, and at the time we were playing, you guys, you had Joe Cole in the team, my cousin lives in Tampa. It was like, it was such a great place as a player uh, to play a professional game. You felt like a, a legit professional. And and I guess, I guess have you partially to thank for that. So. So, so thank you, but moving on from your, your, your Rowdy's experience, after you left there, you worked with, um, in, in USL headquarters, which is in Tampa, right. you spent a few years there. Um, if you wanna just go into a little bit of that, and then I have a, a follow-up question for kind of the future of USL uh, from your perspective.
2: Yeah, I was uh, at the USL league office in 2016 and I left there in 2017. I was the uh, vice president of competition and operations And again jake you know i've always said i've been very very fortunate you know to be in the game as long as i have and um and again you know just you know people that are listening to this podcast you know it's obviously it's about building relationships and again you know you just you know there's opportunities and again you know when i left the rowdies that opportunity presented itself and you know the usl office it's amazing you know here we are like i said i left in 2017 but to see when I left and what it is now, it just continues to grow. And just, you know, what, what the league has grown to. Because you think about, you know, you know you, when it started, obviously, you know, there's, there's always, you know, bumps in the road. But, but to where it is now, it's, it's legitimately, you know, they, they run the, the second division. And then they obviously, you know, branched out from there. And now, obviously, they're getting to the, you know, to the youth leagues with, you know, they got a USL Academy and stuff. So, you know, credit to them. They work hard. And, um, you know, uh, Alex Papadakis and, you know, and his son and, and Jake Edwards and, and Brett Louie and, you know, those guys, they're very inst- instrumental. Um, and you got a great PR guy there, Nick Murray. Those guys, you know, if you ever get the opportunity to come to Tampa and visit that office, you know, you can really see, you know, how they operate. And, and, and again, that's where a lot of that success from the league comes from. So, um, you know, it was a great opportunity for me, um, you know, the operations a little bit different, um, you know, obviously being a player, you know, and, and again, there's, there's, there's issues, there's issues with players, there's issues with coaches, you know, and, and, and again, it's, and they'll always be there, but you know, that's what, 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 what makes the league, but, um, you know, I enjoyed working there, work with, you know, some good people. And, um, you know again it just uh, you know expands you know your 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 knowledge and, and career you know in the game because I respect you know when I see something happen whether it be in the USL or the MLS and now the league is making a decision when you work there and you understand what you go through you, you respect that you understand what they're going through because it's not just you know one situation here a situation there um, you know I don't want to get into all the you know, but, you know, there was times where, you know, as a league, you know, teams have called us and says, you know, we, we need to suspend this player for life. Well, well, hang on a second, you know, and it just, you know, or, or you know, how come he got that? And, and I tell you what, one of the highlights was I was part of the very first VAR game that the USL hosted. And I got a story with this that it hosted up at the New York Red Bulls. So again, you see a smile on my face. I go up there with Brett Louie, who I, I, I got a lot of respect for, okay? He's been at the league for a while, and, and he's a sharp guy. So I go up there with Brett, and we are the league representatives up at New Jersey for the Red Bull game. And um, interesting where, you know, we're in the trailer. So there's four guys in there with headsets and about four different screens, all right? Then you've got the sun referee, the two ARs, and the fourth official. How could they miss it? So I'm watching that game. I'm listening to all the communication. You know, they give us the headsets because we're there as representatives. It's the very first VAR experiment. You know, it started in the USL. And, you know, you leave there. How could this ever go wrong? All right, because again, at the end of the day, the center referee has the final say-so. And there were some calls that, you know what? He makes the sign. He goes over. He looks it up. He comes back. This is the call. (laughs) Well, two games after that, there was a call that was made. Louisville was playing against Red Bull. And the referee called it outside the 18 after review, was inside the 18. So it was a PK. And that ha- happened to be the deciding goal. So again, you know, we're near the end of the season. We're not in the playoffs yet. But, you know, a lot of the people are asking, hey, why are Red Bull only getting those five games? Why isn't it, you know, spread across the league? So again, you know, the fairness of it stuff like that was always in question. But then Jake, after that, it was the third game or the fourth game. He only did five. It was against FC Cincinnati, and I forget. Johnny Harks is coaching the team. Yep. It's a Sunday night. I'm sitting at home. I'm watching the game, and you know it's just it's amazing. It was it was it was a square ball. The eighteen. The ball is played through. Keeper comes out. Goes off the keeper. The guy comes in. So obviously, referee calls a foul, and it's like and a PK and he gives the keeper a red card. Well, the center referee, he goes halfway over to review the VAR and he decides, he don't need to look at it. Uh, he never made it over there. He just came back and says, you know what? This is the call, that's it. Phone rings, i will not forget, <laughs> guy in Cincinnati goes, Perry, what is going on? I says, hang on, hang on. You know, I just, you know, I've been in contact with anybody because I'm just enjoying the game, but that was part of my job to obviously observe the games. And uh, as it turns out, and David, I don't remember, what happens is they gave the player a red card, the goalkeeper, and they got a PK. It should have been a free kick going the other way. The guy was off sides. All right. So now, <laughs> now, David, we're in the office and now they're trying to change it. OK, can we get that red card rescinded and can that keeper play next week, which he did, but we couldn't change you know, the, the result. And that was only nine minutes into the game. So again, that was part of the history that I was part of. And here you now, here we are, you know, two and a half years later, we're still arguing about it. But it was just, it was quite the same. I'll never forget it. I can tell you the players involved and how it happened.
1: So I I've actually heard that story pretty much word for word before. The only thing that so Dallas J, who is the backup keeper for Cincinnati, is yes. now our is now our keeper at Greenville. Yep. And he's been really successful with us, two time goalkeeper of the year. And his first professional game was because Mitch Hildebrand got red carded and he yeah. came off He came off the bench and that was his, <laughs> his professional debut. So he's told that story a few times. So it's it's it's, it's
2: very well, fun. Now, Jake, you say that. So he should have played the next game because Mitch has got a red card. Yeah. We got that turned over. Yeah. You know, I've got the coach in Charlotte, Mike, I'm trying to think of his name. He calls me and says, hey, Jeffrey's. Mike yeah, Jeffries. Like- Mike Perry, how, how can that be changed? Get this, Jake. We've been training that the other goalkeeper's in in playing the goal this game. Now you've got Mitch coming back. Okay, Mike, <laughs> <Come> <laughs> anyway, it just it was never ending, okay? Uh, both yeah. of the things at the league office that you, you know, you just think, you know, how could this happen? There was another incident where, you know, involved uh, a player for the LA Galaxy. Uh, it got into a homophobic slur. And um, again, you know, we had to take, uh, you know, action and and interview the players, interview the referee, the coaches, just to get to the bottom of it. Because, you know, this is something that, you know, the USL rightly so has stood up for this year. So, you know, everybody thinks, well, you know, they need to say this. You know, there, there's, there was a lot more to the story than a lot of people out there in the public, you know, uh, had heard. And, and again, I know from being there, USL did the right thing, as they did this year.
1: So, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, it happened, it happened a week later with, um, no, no, it was, it was a racial slur first and then it was a comic slur. Uh, but it happened two weeks in a row with San Diego, which is, it was obviously big news. And it's so tough because when you watch the telecast, like you don't get the full story and it's so hard because the internal investigations that USL does, they, well, they do as well as they can to get the full story. So as, media or fans or players we're we're like thinking one thing we're like is this is this but we don't know you you don't know unless you're there so it's 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 a very difficult job but it's but it's definitely something important to stand up for um my question moving on from that is uh so being that you're been so involved with usl um where do you see in terms of championship in terms of league one where do you see it progressing and like what is the like, what do you think the end goal, maybe 10 years from now, five years from now, the league would be, do they want to kind of challenge MLS? And, and also as a player, like we just won league one, I think it'd be really cool if we played in, championship, in the championship next year. Uh, do you think that's feasible? Um, and I guess just going to kind of those types of topics.
2: Well, you know what, Jake, this, it would only be my opinion. Okay. So again, I'm not getting any feedback, but just, you know, from being around seeing the situation, you know, look how much MLS has grown, you know, from the first five years, you know, to you know the following 10 years to you know where they're at now. And it continues to grow. So I think the USL is going to have to kind of feed off that. Even though they're their own league and, and they do very well with their league, you know, they know their niche. All right. And again, I think as long as they stay that course, they're going to continue their success. And I don't see them, you know, deviate from that. And what I mean by that is, you know, you take teams like Tampa and Louisville and Phoenix. And um, in Colorado and New Mexico, you know these guys, you know they're implanted in the community. They're going to build their own stadiums. You know they know their niche, and and that's what it's going to be. They're not going to try to be anything that they're not. All right. So then you look at the, uh, you know, MLS. They're going to continue to expand. Why wouldn't they? Okay. I mean, you know, you hear Peter Rami saying, you know, this team could get to 35, 40 teams. Right. This is just me speaking. We're at 30 now, Jake. 10 years later, we could be at 40. Now you got a first and second division. Okay, there's relegation promotion just along MLS itself. Nobody's told me that, but I'm just saying, you know, um, it's not mandatory this upcoming season, but in 2022, the MLS teams will have to have a reserve team. So, you know, now where does that situate, you know, professional soccer in this country? I would imagine they're going to have to start at the third division and work their way up, but we'll see what happens. So again, you know, the game's going to continue to grow both on the men's and women's side. And, um, so, you know, obviously, you know, we have the world cup coming here in 2026 and, you know, I would just hopefully after the next world cup that, you know, obviously the, the, the marketing, the promotion, you know, the sponsorships with, with, you know, the big companies here in the U S there's a big push for it. Um, because again, you know, in order for the game to grow, we have to have, you know, the youth involved and, um, you know, here I'm in the state of Florida and I just know, you know, a little bit's got to do with the pandemic, but you know, I, I can say that, you know, the numbers are down. And just right here in the Tampa Bay area, you know, a friend of mine were talking, he's now the president of FYSA, Kai Vollmer. And, uh, you know, his, uh, and, and he's very involved and he does a lot of studies on this. And he just says, you know what, some of the clubs, you know, they're they're losing players and it's not like they're going somewhere else. So, you know, it's important that, you know, as, as professionals that have been in the game and then with the game to continue that, you know, we, we do our part. And uh, you know, promote the game and, and help the game grow. So one of the things I do on the side is camp kick in the grass. So you know, that was uh, a camp that the Rowdies always uh, you know had run in the past, and you know, I try to do that in the community. And what I'm hoping to do now with one of the former players is get into the you know the communities that don't have you know the economic advantage that a lot of me others do. But the reason I'm doing that is to grow the game. You know, will we find players out of there? Yeah, maybe down the road. But right now, just find sponsors that will support the initiative that we want to do and just grow the game and continue to grow it. And, you know, that's, uh, that's where it's important. So I kind of got off the answer there, but I'm just letting you know that, you know, all those things are important going forward.
0: Having Barry, having done all that you've done in the game and you've done so much and, and, and involved in so many different aspects of the game from all different levels, what, what's out there for you? What, what are you looking to do uh, going forward?
2: Well, again, uh, right now, I'm just working with a couple of youth teams here in Tampa. Um, I'm a technical director for one club, but I also help out a couple other clubs and I do some consulting. And uh, again, you know, as you and Jake said, I've been here for a long time. It is hard to leave. But, you know, it's just, you know, if, if the right opportunity comes along, you know, I want to continue to stay in the game. You know, that's my goal. Uh, I'm not young. But again, you know, uh, there's there's people out there that are coaching, that are technical directors, that are older than me. And, you know, you just have that passion. As I said before, and, you know, I hate to repeat myself, but, you know, I've always said that when I got done playing that I want to put something back into the game, whether it be from a coaching side, from a front office side, you know, from a scouting side, you know, there's plenty of opportunities out there. And, you know, that's what I continue to do. So just right now, I'm just, you know, localized here in Tampa. But, you know, obviously the consulting is, you know, beginning to grow and, you know, you know, that's my goal.
0: Yeah. Would it, would it be something in the professional side, would that be your number one, uh, if you, you know, given your choice? What you yeah, you know what,
2: yeah, David, it would be because, you know, I spent a lot of time in the professional game, and uh, I feel very fortunate for that. It just, you know, I'm not, but again, you know, coming down to the youth game, and, you know, here I am as a technical director, I work with coaches, you know, and I help train teams. But as far as knowing all the ins and outs and the bylaws, uh, you know what, they've changed. You know, since, since now back in what late eighties, early nineties, I was involved in, in the youth game. And, uh, but you know, Jake and you both know how much it's changed since then. So, uh, you know, yeah, my niche would be in the professional game
1: for sure. Well, Perry, no one can say that you haven't given back to the game between one 20 years of playing being a national team, like kind of trailblazer in a way with all your success and, uh, Uh, One thing we didn't even touch on, but I'd be curious maybe to hear off air, even was the 1980 Olympics and like how disappointing that probably was to miss out on that. But between like all your playing and and the coaching and the consulting and the front office stuff and everything you've done for the game, uh, you're a true testament. So it's been a it's been a privilege to have you um, with us here on the Elite Soccer Podcast, as Dave likes to call it, uh, the Aristocrat (laughs) Soccer Podcast. Um, So thank you so much for your time today.
2: Jake and David I want to thank you okay I appreciate what you guys are doing for the game and again you know Jake obviously you know having you you're playing recently and, and and with a successful franchise you know and, and it's fantastic and, and again I, I enjoyed meeting both of you and uh and then Jake I remember you you know playing in, in Edmonton but you know David I enjoyed meeting you and, and having this conversation
0: sure.
2: and um gosh anytime you know we can we can chat again just you know let me
0: know thank you thank you so much Perry and and is there, I don't, I don't think you have a big social media presence, but is there anywhere that people can follow you online to keep up with what you're doing or any websites they think you would recommend checking out or?
2: You know, unfortunately, you know, I just do, you know, the camps and stuff like that. I, I do not. Um, it just kind of, I'm busy as it is, and I'm always one of those people that like to follow up, you know, people reaching out. You know, yesterday was my birthday, and it was one of those where, you know, you get all these birthday witches. And, Happy you know, birthday, Perry. Well, thank you. Happy thank you. thank <laughs> you. I'm always one of those people that, you know, what somebody says, you know, you want to follow them. Hey, you know, what good to hear from you, and just, and, you know, guys from back in grade school, from high school, from, you know, the first teams you played with. So, I'm busy enough as it is. I just kind of, kind of shied away from that. I, I don't know why, and I don't know if I ever get into it, but, uh, yeah. The only Facebook thing I do is my camps. I'm, I'm
0: sorry. I didn't catch that last part. That is, is the camp, uh, the, the camp that you were doing, I think I saw the website for that. Is that something people, people can follow online?
2: Yeah, they can. I just, um, you know, I haven't been very active. I just do. I'm going to be getting more active with that, but I just, you know, because of my commitments and things like that, being at the club, you know, three right. nights to a week and stuff like that and some games on the weekend and, you know, I like to have a little bit of downtime but uh, you know those will pick up in the summertime you know, I'll be doing a holiday camp here in Thanksgiving but you know it's more local David it's not like you know it's one of those uh, yeah. camps that you know gosh you know, Joe matchnick used to run and, and those guys were challenger where you know people come in because again my niche is you know probably the the, the age six to 12 players I'm not going to compete with the colleges or anything like that I just want to try to develop the young players and yeah. have some fun you know learn the game and, and just you know just you know, things like that. I just you uh, know that that's, that's all it is right now.
0: Well, thank you very much again for being so generous with your time and for joining us and and forgiving everybody out there that's listening. Hopefully a lot of people are uh, sharing a lot of uh, information that, you know, probably weren't too familiar with.
2: Oh, David, I, I, you know, thank you for the invite. I, you know, you guys have been great, great questions. You know, you guys, you guys know the game. So thank you.
1: Awesome. Thank Until you. next time, Davey Boy. I'm the athlete. I'm the advocate. <laughs> we are the and arist- we're the
0: aristocrats. <laughs>